One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jen Shapland, author of the essay collection, Thin Skin. There are all of these different forms of like guilt and complicity that lurk under the, our, our knowledge and awareness around climate change. And those feelings are still there, even if you're pretending it's not happening. We'll be back with Jen Shapland after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft 
and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is Jen Shapland, whose first book, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award and the Southern Book Prize and won the 2021 Lambda Literary Award. Her second book, Thin Skin, is a collection of essays that weave historical research, interviews, and Shapland's life to interrogate the line between self and work, human and animal, and need and desire. She traces the legacies of nuclear weapons development on native land in New Mexico, probes the myths of white womanhood and motherhood, and looks at climate change and its impacts. Chaplin also explores her desires to build a creative life as a queer woman and if a meaningful life is possible in a capitalistic society. Chaplin has a PhD in English from University of Texas at Austin, and she works as an archivist for a visual artist. We began the discussion with me asking Jen Chaplin this question. In the very beginning of the book, in your preface, you said, I love essays because they can go anywhere. 
And I think there's a freedom to that. And also it seems really kind of scary (laughs) to think about like all the places your essays can go and you obviously have to contain them somehow. So I wanted to ask you about writing them and, and your approach to essays. I do like that essays can go anywhere. And I think I mean that, especially in talking about really big subjects and questions and also really small and mundane details. Um, And I like in all my writing to toggle between those different planes of experience, maybe because I'm kind of always living in the big ideas in my head, but then also paying attention to these tiny details of everyday life. And and so those things always feel interconnected to me. Um, But a real project with these essays, which kind of, each one just kept growing. I kept sort of reading and learning more. And then each thing I would read would lead me to something else or to a new part of a question or a new uh, idea I wanted to explore. And so they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and longer. And there are long essays, five long essays in this book. Um, So my project really ended up being, yeah, this question of how do I contain that? And how do I give the reader a sense of that freedom and that movement and that sort of following your nose through a series of questions um, while at the same time, you know, reining it in enough that, um, that the essay didn't become a book of its own. Like each one really, I read enough, I thought about it enough. It could have been a whole book, you know, they're big subjects, but I wanted them to be essays. I wanted them to be kind of contained together Um each one, I don't know if you could really read it in a sitting, but um, maybe in a couple of sittings. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was important to me to kind of have the unruliness of the form represented, but also um, a sense that, you know, I wasn't just bringing in things at random, right? Everything does interconnect um, and each detail has significance to the larger questions that I'm exploring. So then as a craftsperson, how do you do that? I mean, it sounds like you are reading a lot and maybe you're reading things around your subject or maybe you're like halfway through the essay and you read something new and you're like, I have to get that in there. And so I think there's like a mystery. How do you know what to take to make it good? The way, the only way I could answer that, I think is on a very like technical process kind of level, which is as I read, I mark pages and quotes that are interesting to me. Um, I read in a lot of different media and forms like actual books, library books, eBooks, PDFs, like all over the place. Sometimes I listen to books. And so then I'm screenshotting like the, the screen of my phone that shows where in the recording the quote is that I want to remember and go back to. Um, so what I try to do as I as I'm doing that reading process is type up the quotes that feel like they might be relevant or significant to the essay. But I do that in a like big, broad, loose way without really asking myself a lot of questions, just instinctually like, OK, this felt significant. This felt significant. Type it all because, you know, a word document can be endlessly long. So you can put it all put it all in there and then later I will go through that document. I'll highlight the quotes that still feel really important or the often I'm kind of like typing up notes to myself in response to the quotes. Um, So I'll highlight the notes that seem significant. And then 
at a certain point, I'll feel comfortable deleting the ones I haven't highlighted. And so that document can get a little bit shorter. And then at that point, I often, I don't always do this, but I often will print it out and then cut the quotes apart from each other and kind of like shuffle the deck. And then I'll try to use that to start making sections or making categories. Um, and so I'll kind of go through like the hundred some quotes or whatever, or the notes that I have to myself and try to say, okay, well, I think all of these are about this subject or all of these answer this question or are in service of this question. Uh, or maybe I want a section that's gonna be called this and that's where these could go. So I start kind of making piles and then within the piles, I start to try to put them in some sort of order that makes logical sense. So then when I finally get to um, the end of that process, I'm I'm going back to the computer. I'm taking the quotes um, and putting them in whatever order I've created. And then I'm sort of writing my way between them um, and trying to figure out how to get from one to another. So it sounds like the quotes from other sources are big skeletal feature of your essays. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I almost feel like the writing occurs in conversation with all these other voices. And that was something um, that's always been true of the way I write. Um, it's just very much based in my reading practice. Um, and that's also something I love about essays. Essays are always marshalling other texts and other voices and, you know, bringing in sometimes even long passages. And that's like since the very first examples of essays. So they're never, or I mean, they can be completely like, individual, um, subjective, uh, first person experiences on the page, but they can also be these kind of collective, um, engagements and kind of calls and responses. And, um, one of my favorite things has always been to bring unexpected things together, unexpected people and voices and moments in time together and kind of to figure out how those talk to each other. That's so interesting. Like it, in a way it changes how I think about your whole collection now because we're sort of doing the autopsy and yeah. I'm thinking that you're just start writing about the topic. Like say you want to write about motherhood or just your sensitivity to the world that you're kind of starting with all these ideas. I mean, obviously you have those ideas already, but that you're literally starting to write there and folding these other things in but it's almost the reverse. Yeah, I mean, and it's not entirely this sort of like document made of quotes. Like a lot of it is also um, my thoughts and my ideas or the questions I came in with or the questions that came up, up along the way. So it's kind of always this back and forth, but I'm definitely not a writer who starts with a blank page ever. <laughs> but you are reading on these themes because as you were saying, you know, you have five essays in this book. Uh, this is going to be like a grossly exaggerated maybe summary of what they are. But the first one you're writing a lot about Oppenheimer and Los Alamos and your sensitivity to the world. And um, in the last one, The Meaning of Life, you're writing a lot about motherhood. You're also writing about kind of spirituality and how that relates to the earth and being solo and joining with another person in relationship and your relationships to, to capitalism, the grief of 
planetary disruptions, you know, so I'm thinking you're starting to read about these things you're thinking about. You're like consciously saying, I want to look around things and read things about motherhood, or I want to read things about how motherhood and the earth intersect. And I want to read things about um, Los Alamos and how that relates to the native people and how that might even relate to where I grow up. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think with uh, the meaning of life, I had this really strong impulse to write about not having kids. And that came in part from not feeling like that perspective was very well represented and, and not finding a lot that I could read on that subject that really felt right or spoke to me, even though there are kind of increasingly more conversations about not having kids, specifically around the climate or specifically around political issues. I still felt, and I kind of rehearsed this in the essay, that the articles I was reading about not having kids all ended up being arguments on behalf of children. Like, we need to not have kids now so that kids in the future can have better lives, or um, we need to... uh, not have kids now because the world is a really bad place and that's not a good place for kids to be. And that frustrated me because I was like, well, what about like, what about me? You know, like, what about if I just don't want them? Like, what about, uh, like, what, what does that life look like? And I just couldn't really find anyone talking about that. But what was also interesting, and this is another part of my practice besides reading, I was talking to my friends about this. I was talking to friends who don't have kids. I was talking to queer friends. I was talking to friends who do have kids. And what really came up in that was that the things I was thinking and feeling were things that my friends without kids and my queer friends, especially would totally talk openly about. And it was like this conversation we were all having. We're like, oh yeah, totally. Oh my God, what is that about? Um, but that wasn't like documented anywhere. So part of the goal in that essay was to sort of like make those conversations public without like outing any of my friends because it's still such a taboo feeling subject and it still feels like a third rail. So I wanted to, I was like, how can I kind of make this feeling and this idea public in a way that will be hopefully affirming and validating to readers who have this same feeling, um, who are maybe looking for that same kind of narrative of, of their own lives out in the world. Um, and so to do that, like, it just, it, it kind of, it took me in a million directions. And in and, and that essay, there are kind of different false starts. Like I start with writing about the feudal system and the witches, um, because they're, there's this wonderful book by Silvia Federici called Caliban and the Witch that really makes a connection that feels like something I already knew and yet had never really seen articulated in this way between the fact of the witch hunts and the like imperative on women to have children and that those things were connected and that kind of casting certain women, especially women who didn't have children, as quote unquote, witches was a way to affirm this other idea of what a good non-witchy woman might be. And so I was I was back there in the witches, but then I was also like thinking a lot about my own mom and her relationship to motherhood. But then I was also having these conversations with my friends because all my friends were getting pregnant and having kids around me while I was trying to articulate this position that was kind of the opposite. Um, so I was trying to talk to them and understand their reasons. And that also ended up feeling like a dead end because I was like, well, I'm actually not trying to write about motherhood. I'm trying to write about the opposite of motherhood, not having kids. So where's that? So then I'm reading all these studies about um, 
child-free people? And, um, you know, what are the consequences if you choose not to have children? What studies have even been done on these people? So I'm going along in all those directions. And then suddenly two things happened in succession as I was trying to come to the end of this essay, um, as I was trying to, you know, get to that process where I could whittle everything down and then figure out what order it went in, which was Roe was overturned. And then, um, just a matter of weeks later, my mom died. And so that was an instance of my life outside of my writing, kind of just suddenly encroaching on the space of writing and really shifting what I had to say and what I felt the essay needed to do and what it needed to be about. Um, so that was kind of the process that that one went through. Um, and then with Thin Skin, I had written about Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project and some of the lingering resonances of nuclear weapons development in New Mexico years ago, like right after I moved here. It's something that's very striking if you live here that you become very aware of quickly. Um, and so I, I had written about that. I had interviewed a few people, a few friends of mine who had kind of grown up with that. And then I wanted to write more. I wanted to know more. And so I started interviewing um, a bunch of different experts and activists specifically around the history of uranium mining in New Mexico, which is less talked about than Los Alamos or the Trinity test or the Manhattan project. But it was something that, you know, all of these mines were created on Navajo land and on Pueblo land um, in the kind of 40s and 50s um, in order to supply the raw materials for making nuclear weapons. And then those mines left these um, not only scars in the earth, but like radioactive uh, landfills, basically, um, that haven't been cleaned up. And so I was interviewing people about that and trying to understand that. Um, and in the process of doing that, realized, oh, I think part of the reason I'm drawn to this subject of exposure is because there is this history of environmental illness in my own family. My mom's breast cancer was environmental, um, and my dad's sister had a number of kind of mysterious ongoing chronic illnesses that ultimately in a conversation with him came to seem likely environmental as well. So it was kind of one of those instances where you're writing and in the process of writing, you start to realize, oh, all the personal components that are undergirding the research um, and that are leading me to be interested in this. So it's not to say that, you know, people dealing with radioactive contamination uh, in New Mexico, and specifically the groups that um, are dealing with that, who are usually uh, Native people or brown people, um, and who are usually um, kind of neglected completely by the government. So it's not to say that that experience is the same as what my mom or my dad experienced, or even what I experienced in New Mexico um, in terms of my own various chronic illnesses, my own kind of suspicion of environmental toxins. But it is to say like that all of these things exist on a spectrum and that any person can find themselves somewhere within that. Um, if you start, if you start looking. What do you make of the experience of when you start writing about things, other things pop up that relate to that, that maybe you never thought about your mom and your dad's health. And all of a sudden you're writing this and then that links or that you're writing about motherhood and then your mom dies and the Supreme Court rules against abortion. 
I'm not saying that your writing about it caused these things, but I do think that there's some kind of maybe some magical intertwining that the universe gives you when you're working on something. But I, I'm just curious what you think about that. I've never thought about it quite that way. I, I think for me, it's more, I don't know if it's kind of like, uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like, you know, suddenly uh, I see the world in the terms of environmental contamination, but more if you really um, focus on something, like if you really focus on the idea of motherhood and how it is constructed and how like people who are raised as girls are raised to caretake and to have this you know notion of selflessness and this need to put others before themselves. If you start Focusing on that in some way, if you start reading and researching around that subject, you see it everywhere. Like you can't, you can't not see it. I I was seeing it in every show I watched and every movie I watched and every book I read and every conversation I had with anyone. Um, and so then it was up to me to be like, okay, should I talk about this in this situation or should I just kind of like file this away as like, okay, this is another way that this is part of our culture. And each of the essays deals with uh, something that is like deep and structural, um, something that kind of shapes my experience and my identity and many people's experiences and identities. Um, and the essays are kind of a way of like, how do we get down to that structure, understand it? And then how do we take that understanding back to our day-to-day lives? We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So let's talk a little bit about the first essay, Thin Skin, which is also the title of the collection, which, you know, I, I got a sense of you from reading this, even though you're writing about, you know, environmental degradation and uranium mining and Los Alamos and environmental health issues and Altgelt Gardens in Chicago and your own condition, which you have that you're missing a layer of your skin, which I wanted to ask you about. (laughs) In these essays, I think they were deeply about what we do to the earth, the consequences for people who, who don't have the privilege that white people have. And like, what are we doing? Like in the name of what, why are we doing this in the name of what? And one of the things you mentioned in there is that when you have the knowledge and you tell people, sometimes they don't want to know, like you knew that 
you were going to a hot spring or a river that was contaminated maybe with uranium and you didn't know if you should tell your friends because that would take away their joy. And that seemed like a microcosm of what writing these essays are. It's like, you know all this, and yeah. do you tell it? I guess your sensitivity to the world really came out. Yeah, I mean, it was such a funny conversation with my friend um, when I was like, you know, the secret spot you took us to to swim last week. Well, there's plutonium in it, or they found plutonium in it not that many years ago. And, you know, his response was funny. His response was, oh, I don't want to know that. I wish you hadn't told me that. Um, it's, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I put in the book that that was a joke. And then I talked to him about it later. And he was like, I don't know if it was a joke. Like, I, I actually think <laughs> ignorance might be bliss on this front. Um, and that's something that I really felt confronted by with that essay. Um, I hadn't planned to put it first in the collection. It was going to be the second essay and Crystal Vortex was going to be first. So I had this idea that there would be like, almost like a lighter, easier way in through the essay that starts out being about kind of self-help literature and creativity. And I was like, yeah, that feels gentle <laughs> as a way to start. Um, and my editor felt strongly that Thin Skin should go first. And Thin Skin really starts in this world of, of radioactive contamination and nuclear weapons development and the people immediately affected by it, which is like one of the darkest things imaginable to me. You know, um, the like living with that knowledge, even just conducting those interviews, um, let alone for those, you know, who are speaking and what they have experienced and the losses they've experienced, the family members they've lost, the illnesses they've faced, right? Um, it, it felt like a scary place to begin a book, but it also felt like the most urgent place to begin. It feels like chemical exposures, um, chemical contamination, environmental illness are things that we are all kind of aware of sort of on the outskirts of our consciousness, but it's not something that I read a lot about, or it's not something that, um, seems to come up or that people seem to want to talk about. And I specifically talk in that essay about the number of my friends here in New Mexico who are cancer survivors. And how that never comes up. And it's something that interests me. There's almost this desire to focus on cancer as this, you know, illness, this disease that you're fighting against with Western medicine and that you're going to beat. Um, but not to really wonder, like, how did I get this? What caused this? And I think it's because to ask that is like existentially terrifying um, to realize the thing that I'm talking about in that essay, which is that we are permeable beings, right, that our skin it, our bodies are constantly absorbing things from outside of us and vice versa and from one another is like actually really terrifying. Um, it, it threatens our conception of individuality of, of being kind of separate from one another of having, you know, agency, right. It's really hard to have agency if you're suddenly aware that, you know, the air you breathe is, is polluted. Like how can you shift that? I mean, Last summer, there were these terrible fires uh, in New Mexico. And so everyone was buying air purifiers and like closing their windows and trying to stay in their homes. You know, it's like it becomes almost absurd, this need to try to protect ourselves. Um, and so my sensitivity comes through in that essay. I talk about my literal thin skin, um, which was a diagnosis I got from a dermatologist, um, basically just saying that the ceramide layer of my skin is... Uh, 
is not thick enough, <laughs> is not substantial enough. Um, and that was kind of causing all these rashes and other issues. Um, but that became a really important metaphor for this larger sense of permeability with the environment and how um, vulnerable that makes me feel and that kind of renders everyone, everyone around me. And you're really talking about a lot of environmental justice issues and that the people who live in these areas that are usually considered places where people can be forgotten, you know, the people who live around Los Alamos and Altgeld Gardens, which is a, a very far western public housing in Chicago, and even where your parents grew up experiencing fallout from fertilizer factories that affected their health, that there's a lot of issues of justice involved in there. And and I think that themes of climate change and that kind of justice are very strong themes in the entire book. Yeah. And I, it was interesting to me to kind of thread those things together and to realize that they were all issues of environmental justice. Like, I don't think I went in thinking, oh yeah, the fertilizer plant that my dad grew up near is like not that different from the stuff that Rachel Carson was trying to tell everyone about um, when she was writing Silent Spring and like the place where my mom grew up, which was near All Guild Gardens in Calumet Park. Um, you know, that area is now referred to by sociologists as a toxic donut, which is something she never knew. She never was aware of. And she never really wanted to be aware of it either. Like who wants to know that? Like who wants to realize, oh, I grew up in a toxic donut. Like that's a terrible thing to know. But yeah, just even beginning to see that like around all gold gardens, Hazel Johnson and her daughter, Cheryl Johnson have been, you know, working to create a conversation around the contamination there from all the steel mills and all the illness that has resulted from that. And that's kind of like Hazel Johnson is seen as the mother of the environmental justice movement um, to realize that, which is again, something that my mom knew nothing about. And that like that, even that fight is very separate from the community that she grew up in. Um, the community my mom grew up in was like a white immigrant community um, and Algold Gardens is a largely black housing development. And yet, you know, all of these people were affected at different levels um, and in different ways. And then the same in New Mexico, there's a lot of discussion about Oppenheimer, about Los Alamos, about like some of the contamination that came from the Trinity test and the downwinders. There's less conversation about the uranium mining, which is this much more ubiquitous and ongoing source of poison, source of toxins. There's less discussion about WIP, um, which is the waste isolation pilot plant in southern New Mexico, where all of the waste from nuclear weapons development is is being sent to be stored and there isn't enough room to store it and it's not really necessarily being stored properly so basically it, it's it's been enlightening to see you know the the ways that activism has grown up around these issues what people are aware of what people are completely unaware of in the case of my dad and the fertilizer plant as far as i can tell no one's talking about that. No one knows about it. And yet my dad knows a lot of people in his community were sick um, and have been sick and have died as a result. And yet it's kind of this thing that if you try to look it up or research it, it's like it never even happened, never even existed. I was going to ask you about the movie Oppenheimer, and I haven't seen it. I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen some chatter. 
you know, out there about how much was left out about the people who were harmed by all this, but I didn't know if you've seen it. I haven't. I'm actually going to see it this afternoon because I keep getting asked about it. Um, so I feel like I I can kind of um, make my own argument for why what I think is probably wrong with it, but I should probably see it so that I can make it more accurately. Um, but I do know that in New Mexico, they've started screening a PSA before showing that movie in theaters. Um, that's from the Tularosa Downwinders. So the people who were exposed during the Trinity test, um, that's just kind of, you know, trying to call some attention to that. And what I find so strange about it in theory, again, not having seen the movie is that there's this kind of ongoing effort to, historicize the bomb and the development of the bomb and its use, its testing, and to kind of like build the narrative around Oppenheimer himself and his existential crisis. And even, you know, what I write about in the book is the Manhattan Project National Historic Site that they opened a few years ago, which is like a museum and a walking tour, again, just trying to say like, this is something that happened in the past. But what's actually happening is that the Biden administration has like dumped a ton of money into producing more new plutonium pits, which are the cores of nuclear weapons, um, because of this imperative to kind of keep our nuclear arsenal in top form. And there's a writer here in New Mexico named Alicia Guzman, who's doing a little bit more of the sort of boots on the ground research about some of this. And she's writing for Searchlight New Mexico. Her work is is really important. Um, one of the things she writes about is that there are high school students right now basically being groomed by colleges in the state to go learn and train to make these plutonium pits at Los Alamos. So it's like, it's not over in the sense that like many places are still contaminated, but it's also not over in that like we're still doing this. It's still really unsafe. People are still being exposed at work, like, and all in the service of some sort of, you know, national global security. Because so many of these essays, you know, focus on this climate crisis, they focus on the excess of being human, the the things we buy, the you write even there is like excess is a violent force, like the consumption that we have as humans. And you write about the path of creativity and not having kids and a lot about Rachel Carson. And you say at one point in the middle, you talk about radical acceptance and that that's something one of your therapists was trying to help you, I guess, obtain um, because I think, you know, what I sensed from the reason for that was because when you are a sensitive person and you see what's going on in the world, it is very hard to turn it off and just go out and have fun and I don't know, blow up balloons and have a pizza party. So right. I, I was curious about that. Radical acceptance. Yeah. I haven't quite figured it out yet, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting idea. And I think one of the things, one of the, I don't, have a lot of answers in this book. I really have a lot of big questions that I'm asking and that I want other people to sit with. And, um, you know, I want conversations to come up around those questions. But one conclusion that I did come to is that as much as it seems to be helpful for some people to, like, for example, deny that climate change is happening or deny that, you know, this, this these 
different forms of environmental destruction are happening, um, often in the name of consumer capitalism, often in the name of us obtaining stuff. Um, that, that living in the dark like that, like that's not actually, not only does it not solve the problem, it doesn't feel good either. Like it, it doesn't actually make it go away or make you feel any better. Because there are all of these different forms of like guilt and complicity that lurk under that are our knowledge and awareness around climate change. And those feelings are still there, even if you're pretending it's not happening. I think this summer is a good example because this summer it is really hot in a lot of places. And you know, that's been happening for years, but I think people are feeling it on a day-to-day level in a way that they maybe have it felt it before. Um, that's something I'm noticing in conversation, noticing in the media. Um, and I think you can't, you can't really like live in the space of feeling that heat and also like refusing to know what's going on. So radical acceptance for me requires first acknowledging what has happened and what is happening and why it's happening and how you might be complicit within that, how you might even be responsible for that. Um, and then the second part, you know, beyond the acceptance, I guess, that I arrive at is this need to think about legacy and to think about, okay, if the legacy of human beings on this planet right now is one of destruction and devastation and species extinction and, um, you know, not to mention all the social problems we've also brought and violence and and suffering. I mean, if if that's what we've managed to do so far, rather than try to sort of like erase our impact, like get rid of our carbon footprint, like what are some other ways we could start thinking about legacies we want to leave, um, things that we want to leave behind. Um, and that's really where the not having kids essay comes in, um, to think, you know, if we aren't structuring our, our understanding of our lives and our mortality around the idea that we have children, we are part of the cycle of life. And like, that's how we continue our, um, impact on the world. What other impacts might we, uh, might we try to have, might we want to have? Yeah, I think the, the meaning of life was, probably the longest essay, which is, you know, you start off talking about witches and mythology or reality of women's roles for centuries. And you talk a lot about that it can be, you know, it can be the greatest thing you do for climate change is not to have a child. And you also talk about sort of claiming your space in the world and you talk about Rachel Carson and how it relates to the earth in terms of her own romantic relationships that she had. And she ended up in her life having to care for a nephew and what that did to her creativity. And you also talk about motherhood as a sort of um, entitlement to less and a, a sacrifice that, that we make. You also had a conversation with a man at a residency where he's basically saying like the most and maybe only meaningful thing you can do as a human being is to have children. That's another one of those ideas that as I was reading, as I was researching, as I was thinking about that essay became more and more omnipresent. And 
um, inescapable. And it's, it's very commonplace, like this idea that like, if you want to have a full and meaningful life, children and not even just children, but biological children need to be a part of that. Like they need to be genetically your children. You need to have them. You need to eat, you know, if you're, um, if you have a uterus, you need to actually be pregnant and go through that experience. And if you don't do all of those things, um, and have that experience, it's almost as though you're not fully human according to that logic. And that logic is powerful and it is all over the place in different ways. Um, in the culture. And when you really stop to look at that, it's, it's a bizarre idea. And it's an idea that really like discounts the experience and the personhood of a lot of people, of people who don't have the ability to have children or don't have the desire to have them. Um, and, you know, but it also like discounts the experience of people who are single or people who, you know, have different ideas of what family might be for them. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of write, write into that space and, and try to understand, okay, like if that's the way many people are defining full personhood, what are some other ways we could understand what it is to be a person and what it is to live a meaningful life? Um, but again, that's very taboo. Like it's, it's very deeply ingrained in us that, um, to have a family is to have kids and to have kids is to have a meaningful life, to have a life with purpose. Well, something too, that was maybe one of the more fascinating elements of your essays was you, you are with a partner now and your partner does not want children and you kind of conjecture like, what was your, what would your life have been like if you had, chosen a different partner or if your partner had wanted children and it seemed like your life was like just a thread away from maybe even getting married and having kids and going down this road, maybe because um, you wouldn't have found the right person to basically validate what you're feeling or articulate it in a way that you weren't able to before or just circumstances and I, I wanted to ask you about that, but also just say that I think that can be so common for people that they're just a thread away. Like you, you were able to walk into some like little hidden vortex that opened up this whole black hole and allowed you to see your life differently, but how close so many of us are to some alternative reality, but we never find the door. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because the, the forces and the powers and the structures that, um, are, are pushing you into, um, the sort of more expected path are so, so powerful and they act on us even now. Like we still hear from friends. Oh, like, I know you say you're not going to have kids, but you'll change your mind. Like there's still kind of this Mm, this pressure that lives, even though we're queer, even though we're not interested in that life. Um, but yeah, I, I feel really lucky, um, in that regard to have been able to kind of have a queer awakening in my own life. I mean, I attribute a lot of my values and understanding around, 
around marriage and around kids to that. Um, and that has to do with things that I read, but also relationships that I was a part of um, that really like kind of busted that door wide open for me um, and kind of allowed me access to this alternate world, um, this space where I don't necessarily feel like I am incomplete because I don't have a husband and I don't have kids. I actually don't want any of those things, right? Like, but that like world wouldn't have existed um, without uh, really without like kind of having a queer coming of age in my own life. And then really without being with my partner um, who so clearly knew what she wanted um, when, as I sort of describe in that essay, what I wanted has changed over the course of my life. When I was young, I really thought I wanted to have kids because I was playing with a lot of dolls, right? And then later I was like, oh, I really want to be pregnant because that seems so powerful and interesting. And honestly, I still think it sounds interesting, like, but in a very like selfish writerly way, like that would be cool to write about, you know, which is definitely not the reason to do it. Um, and then after that, like suddenly feeling in my twenties, like, oh, I just want to be an old lady. If I were an old lady, then none of this would matter. You know, like that, there wouldn't be this pressure or this expectation on me. Um, I would have this freedom. And I, I've really gotten attached to that idea. I um, had a piece come out a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times Magazine where I write about she dandies, which is like this poet Lisa Robertson wrote something called Proverbs of a She Dandy, which is all about postmenopausal women and sort of the freedom and in the invisibility that they have. Um, so that's somewhere that uh, meaning of life essay goes to is kind of in the direction of embracing, you know, what it means to be kind of on the other side of the expectation to procreate. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I'm going to read from a poem by uh, Lily Longsolter uh, from her book, Whereas, and the poem is called 38. And I'm not a poet, so uh, I won't probably read it right. 38. Here, the sentence will be respected. I will compose each sentence with care by minding what the rules of writing dictate. For example, all sentences will begin with capital letters. Likewise, the history of the sentence will be honored by ending each one with appropriate punctuation, such as a period or question mark, thus bringing the idea to momentary completion. You may like to know, I do not consider this a creative piece. I do not regard this as a poem of great imagination or a work of fiction. Also, historical events will not be dramatized for an interesting read. Therefore, I feel most responsible to the orderly sentence, conveyor of thought. That said, I will begin. You may or may not have heard about the Dakota 38. If this is the first time you've heard of it, you might wonder, what is the Dakota 38? The Dakota 38 refers to 38 Dakota men who were executed by hanging under orders from President Abraham Lincoln. 
To date, this is the largest legal mass execution in U.S. history. The hanging took place on December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas. This was the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In the preceding sentence, I italicize same week for emphasis. There was a movie titled Lincoln about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. The signing of the Emancipation Proclamation was included in the film Lincoln. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was not. In any case, you might be asking, why were 38 Dakota men hung? As a side note, the past tense of hang is hung, but when referring to the capital punishment of hanging, the correct past tense is hanged. So it's possible that you're asking, why were 38 Dakota men hanged? They were hanged for the Sioux uprising. I want to tell you about the Sioux uprising, but I don't know where to begin. I may jump around and details will not unfold in chronological order. Keep in mind, I am not a historian. So I will recount facts as best I can, given limited resources and understanding. Can you tell me more about why you chose that? Yeah. Um, I love I love the poems in this book and I love Long Soldier's work. Um, and what I love about this one, what I admire so much, is that she is bringing in uh, historical information. She's bringing in quotations. She's bringing in um, these facts from other sources. But at the same time, she is super attentive to the fact of her own rewriting of that history. Um, she's making it clear that there's no way for her to talk about this fact, the fact of the Dakota 38, without in some way rewriting the history. And she calls attention to that when she says, you know, that she italicized certain words for emphasis, right? Um, and then she also calls attention to the fact that she's not some sort of expert and that she's talking about this not because she's a historian or because she's really going to kind of break this story or explain this once and for all, but because it's something she needs to tell people. Um, and that she is not going to tell it in order, right? And that she's not going to um, be, you know, the last word on this. And yet it is something that she really needs to explain. And I think um, that is something that has really stuck with me. I used to teach um, this book and this poem when I taught creative writing. And um, there are a lot of poets right now who are doing things that almost feel nonfiction-y um, to me. And Long Soldier is one of them um, because of the way she brings in other texts um, and other you know, pieces of information and histories. Um, but I was really moved by kind of her refusal to, her refusal to be an expert and yet her insistence on kind of finding a way to retell the story while calling attention to its retelling. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you like. I think I'm going to read this part of The Meaning of Life. And this was not hard for me to write, but it was hard for me to keep in the draft. Why can't we not want children for ourselves? I don't want them for my own sake. 
not because I think kids are terrible. It's not about them, but because I want my own life. Not because the world isn't good enough for them, but because they actively make the current problems of the world I live in worse with the pitter-patter of their little carbon footprints. It's not the future I'm trying to preserve or protect. It's now. It's me. It's my life. Saying this, writing the words, feels like breaking a taboo. I sit at my desk and watch through the window for the lighted torches and pitchforks to march toward the front door. Refusing motherhood is at once a failure and a crime. The deep down guilt of it. Like abortion, the crime is stopping something that never started, ending a life before it begins, thwarting possibility, potential, unfulfilled futures. But no one talks about the possibility, the potential, the futures thwarted by having kids. Eileen Miles writes, I think women are supposed to open their legs to time and let it pass through them. When I watch my friends become mothers, I feel a terrible loss. When my friends stay with disappointing boyfriends and say they just want to get married someday and have kids someday, I'm bereft. When the best minds of my generation spend all their savings on IVF treatments, only to lose each precious embryo and say that now they will never have a life that feels complete, I long to tell them, darlings, we are free. Throw out your syringes, thaw your eggs, scramble them. You are enough. You are a whole person on your own, without the baby, without the husband. It makes sense that a person raised as a girl wouldn't think of themselves as whole or complete on their own. The foundation of our culture is the idea that they aren't. I can see how important it is to them, the baby, how badly they want it. And when they get the baby, I see their joy, usually on Instagram, because they no longer have time to talk or text. I rarely hear from them much again as they are presumably swept up by the tide of blissful selflessness or the onslaught of unpaid labor under bad reproductive working conditions. Why does having a baby feel so important, so necessary to them? Is it truly what they want or is it what they've been made to feel will fulfill them? No one can answer this question objectively. Of course, I'm getting carried away. I cannot voice any of these concerns. I can't respond to someone's ultrasound photo with this greed about the way the motherhood mandate oppresses us or the ramifications for the climate. I can't even mention that posting an ultrasound photo is in direct contradiction with their professed political stance on abortion. Not only am I not supposed to voice my anger or my disappointment, but I'm supposed to be thrilled. I'm supposed to treat this as an unmitigated source of joy for their life and mine. No other decision a person can make demands such reverence, such unconditional, positive regard. I am talking not about the child itself, but about the decision to have it. Can you share a little more about why you chose that? Like I said, that wasn't hard for me to write. Those are, you know, thoughts and feelings that I'm kind of was deeply wrestling with in the process of writing this essay, but keeping them in the draft, knowing that people were going to read it was, and continues to be a source of like terror and dread. Um, so 
so far, no one who's read it, including friends of mine who are mothers and people I don't know who are mothers, none of them have been angry or upset um, in the way that I worried they would be. But uh, there is something that feels very dangerous about not only saying these things or thinking these things or feeling these things, but putting them on paper and then putting them out into the world. Where do you write? I write everywhere. Um, and I'm kind of always writing in my head. Um, I often end up writing things in the notes app, app on my phone. Um, if I'm sort of running around or, or not near paper, um, I also often write in a notebook freehand. I don't usually draft things on the computer. Um, and then I write most mornings in my bed in a notebook. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Lately, the past few years, I've been going camping as a way to kind of get away from everything, especially to get away from the internet. Um, although I often end up writing while I'm camping. Um, if I'm in the middle of writing, say I'm like in my office, like working through something, I often get up and go into the garden. Um, I just started keeping bees this year. So I like to go check on the bees and just be reminded of like what other species are up to and how they're spending their days. That's a way to kind of get out of my head, um, go for a walk or a swim, getting into my body or into nature kind of helps me get out of my head. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My partner, Chelsea, who um, has worked as an editor and who is a writer herself, um, but she's always my first reader. How have you dealt with rejection? I've had a lot of it. Um, and a professor told me very early on um, that when you get a rejection, all that means is you should send it, whatever it is, out to three more places, or you should apply to three more things. Um, so that's usually what I try to do with it. I try to use it as motivation. Um, but it also hurts and is extremely discouraging and it doesn't go away. I find like, even if you have success in one area or you feel like, oh, okay, people really liked that thing I wrote. Um, the next thing you write, is like probably going to be rejected a bazillion more times and then you just go through it all over again. So perseverance, I guess. And what is your favorite word? I don't think I have a favorite word. Um, or if I do, it kind of changes by the day depending on what I'm reading or thinking about. But the word that I uh, was liking this week is bramble. Um, like to say, you know, a subject or something is like a field with a lot of brambles in it. I like how the word sounds. I like what it means, uh, a tangle, but it's a tangle that you can kind of visualize and also you can feel with your body, you know, getting stuck in it. Thank you so much for your time and, and doing this interview. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me, Mitzi. This was lovely. If you like today's show with Jen Shapland, author of Thin Skin, check out my interview with Terry Tempest Williams on our essay collection, Erosion. We talked about engagement leading to hope, what erosion means to her, and belonging to the land and one another. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. 
Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Tan Tuan Eng. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.